one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I was the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it here. I'd say it to your face, not say it to me now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? The Premier League manager's post-match interview is not everybody's cup of tea. It can be a bit of a slog sometimes for the viewer, the interviewer, and the interviewee. But every now and again, you get one that hits the spot, and that happened a couple of times this week. Murph and Ken are with me for today's Irish Times, Second Cabinet Football Podcast. Hello, How are you doing, Owen? Hi, guys. I'm sure you'll be speaking about Jose Mourinho's post-match conduct at some point, Ken. So what I will do instead is start off. I think it will be a shame, indeed, to let Arsene Wenger's thoughts from Tuesday night drift off into oblivion without giving them a little bit more consideration. They were beaten at home by Watford. Our pal Troy Deeney in the goals again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Troy Deeney's, Troy Deeney's a quality player, aren't I know. Great attitude. He's been through some tough times, but he's grown as a, as a man, That's as a, a footballer, <laughs> and, uh, and he's a top, top player. Let's have a listen to the start of our Saints interview. How off the pace mentally and physically were your team in, in that first 20 minutes? Uh, very much so. Uh, I think uh, it was obvious we lost duels, you know, we were not sharp enough. Uh, I felt uh, from outside it looked more mentally we were not ready for the challenges and uh, thought maybe subconsciously, OK, let's uh, play our game and it will be enough. And it was not enough. And uh, on top of that, uh, you know... Right, so he goes on and starts then talking a little bit, half-heartedly making excuses about the referee and that yeah. kind of the, the usual stuff. But just consider what he said there. I know we've heard it time and again, mm. usually once a season. It's absolutely staggering to me that they are still in this situation every year where they can have a meltdown like this against mediocre opposition and it's accepted by Wenger that this is the case. Mm. You know, he hasn't managed to get them to a pitch. Later on in the interview, he said that he was very conscientious in the preparation of the team. And I don't think anyone thinks that Arsene Wenger is not conscientious in preparing the Arsenal team. But there's something that's gone missing there. And I, I just think that we've heard it so often. For example, off air, Ken. I, I see mm-hmm. Kieran looking at me here with slightly bored eyes. And when I mentioned this interview to him last night, he's, he was like, so what? Wenger's just saying that his team was soft. Mm-hmm. We've heard it before. Yeah. I say to you, Kieran, 
mm-hmm. now that you're still looking at me waiting to be convinced that it's pretty amazing that Arsene Wenger is prepared to admit this and it just kind of goes off into the ether. Nobody cares that this guy can't properly prepare his football team to be motivated to withstand a few tough tackles well, from Watford. Well, I, I think that, uh, I mean, it's so blatantly obvious that that's what's happened, mm. that Wenger would look like an idiot, quite frankly, to say that the team had prepared well and uh, a couple of, you know, a couple of minor mistakes did for us and then the referee screwed us. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I, I like, I think you can go too far down the path of saying, you know, that uh, the, the honesty in an interview you know, you, we, we can't have it, you know? No, you know, yeah, no, that's not the point. I th- I, I actually agree with what you're saying there, that it, it was so bad and it was so obvious that he felt he had to admit mm. it. It's not so much the, the, admit, the admission that is the, key, is the key issue. It's just the fact that this is Arsenal. Lads, it's Arsenal, is what I'd be saying if I was playing against Arsenal these mm. days. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure people have been, have been saying that. But, the, you know, I, in, in Arsenal's defence, they were, I mean, the two goals... That, that they conceded early. The first was a deflection. You could say maybe they weren't set up very well. Although, I mean, there's, there's different ways to set up for these free kicks. I mean, for instance, David Luiz scored a free kick from long distance against <laughs> Liverpool. And who was it saying, why, why do the goalkeepers even have walls when the ball's that far out? You don't need a wall. Eyes on the ball. You know, and say, if you can stick it past me from there, you know, fair Rest play to you. Now, that's basically what Arsenal did. Except... Uh, the shot was then deflected off a man at the edge of the box who, okay, does in a a cowardly way turn his turn his back on the ball. Is it I forget which player it was, mm. but uh, the ball deflects off that player and it's an it's kind of an unlucky goal to concede. Oftentimes a deflection like that on a hard shot will end up in the net. There's not a lot your goalkeeper can do. That didn't stop some of the fans blaming the goalkeeper. Um and then the second goal was actually just amazing play by Kapoor, like brilliant. Okay, he. Well, I mean, Aaron Ramsey. Do, Aaron Ramsey didn't I mean, give up. <laughs> and uh, the oh, come on! It was really. It was uh, Aaron Ramsey gave gave it away and then didn't really chase back. Didn't didn't create any more problems for Kapoor. He just he just jogged back and watched what was happening. But Kapoor did was really really good play. I mean, yeah. he played. He gave an absolutely brilliant performance throughout the game. He was like Patrick Vieira. You know, he really was. It was like that that sort of uh, holding off opponents, you know, turning past people in midfield. And on that occasion, you know, a big, turning past traffic long-legged in stride. Yeah, you know, but it's. I think sometimes you've got to Also, when say, you're a defender, you you can't be beaten by, like, just knocking it past a guy. When you're he, after, I mean, he, he faked the whole it idea a bit. Because he, 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 Deeney was there. So he faked it first to sort of pass to Deeney with the inside of his right foot and then instead swept the ball past the defender, then had a shot which the goalkeeper, okay, maybe could have saved. I mean, look, you could be very critical or you could do what I've done and try to try to give Watford a bit of credit. Why does it always have to be about Arsenal? All credit to Watford. In All credit to Watford. But, you know, we've been talking about Arsene Wenger here. These, what, is, what would you say is the common factor linking all of those Arsenal players and supporters and manager? Football, <laughs> Arsenal—they're all human beings. Human beings, yeah, even yeah, more yeah. broad than football. Every yeah. one of them. I was thinking way too, way uh, too micro narrow. there. Yeah. By just every one of them is a human being with a human heart full yeah. of imperfection, right? Consistency, you know, consistency is is for machines. Mm-hmm. Consistency is 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 to do with lathe work. You know, this is this is humanity. Sometimes your team falls flat in its face. That's just the way that 
that it is when you're dealing with human football players. Well, Arsenal in particular, but... Spineless! <laughs> um, okay, well, let's, let's, maybe we'll have, we'll have a little bit more of that. Um, yeah. Well, Tommy McGregor has an email before we go. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He uh, has emailed editor secondcaptains.com. He's got a theory, I should say. Mm. How are you, lads? After yet another astoundingly bad midwinter result for Arsenal, I'm beginning to wonder if Arsenal aren't trying to be a successful football team at all, but rather they're engaging some kind of high-concept performance art. Is Arsene Wenger the Sheila LaBeouf football management? Please let me know what you think of my conspiracy theory, or is it an alternative fact? Writing from Florence, huge fan of the show. Guys, you're amazing. All the best from Tommy. <laughs> we get a lot of that on Twitter since Luke Jensen, our tennis oh, correspondent, said just oh, that. you're amazing. It's already on the hotkey. That's excellent a lot of, You do feel good, even when people are taking the piss out of you, essentially. Still, it feels nice to be told you're amazing. amazing. I mean, not just good. I mean, not yeah. just you're a fine man. You're amazing. Owen. Interesting theory there from Tommy Ken. Before you report on your sport, just a quick heads up to everybody that yeah. we've got some big, big second captain's news on the way. It's something we're mega excited about and we'll bring it to you on Monday's podcast. So stay tuned for that. Simon, I, I don't think you heard me. It's going to be big. Huge. That's more like it. We've got the wolf hell. Listen to Monday's show. Drum beats, finger, wolf elf. Finger slip. Does the wolf play the drum? No. No, no, no. no. It's a separate, they're two separate sound a, effects mixed together. No, the, no, the wolf, wolf no, the wolf is, <laughs> the wolf is annoyed by the drum roll. That's why he or she is howling. Okay, so just go about your weekend as usual, but do make sure to be here for Monday's show when we announce the brilliant new news. Now, Ken, please report on sport. Well, just in relation to that email we had there, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about Arsene Wenger here. Um, David Stubbs, a man we've had on the programme before, um, he was an Arsenal supporter, has been has been watching attentively the entire Arsene Wenger era. I remember writing, and this was, this was a solid five years ago at this stage, <laughs> I mean, it's, this is not a new thing, but writing about Wenger... I can only suspect he has developed some deep-seated strain of masochism, a bizarre addiction to the pain of draws and defeats snatched from the joys of runaway stylish victory. It's an addiction he picked up somewhere along the line, possibly in that four-all draw against Spurs in which they came back from 2-4 down. The anxiety that is the bane of Arsenal's life in which even when you're 3-1 against Blackpool, you can't relax until there are 15 seconds of injury time remaining. It's something he can't live without. That hideous, sickening sense of foreboding and humiliation has become his fix. Deprive him of it, and life to him would be a banal, lobotomized succession of easy victories, lacking the accredity and burning sensation in the pit of the stomach that for him provides life's most searingly exquisite sensation. <laughs> so there may be something in that. There was plenty of that to savor uh, when Arsenal lost to Watford because they were 2 0 down for, for a lot of the game. And eventually, thanks to the brilliance of Alexis Sanchez, and I mean brilliance, they managed to get one back, but even Alexis Sanchez could not quite. You know, get them back to uh, to parody. What about the performance art theory from Tommy McGregor? Um, well, I, d- I don't know. I mean, I, d- I don't think so because I think I think David Stubbs is actually closer to it. Mm. <laughs> There's something warped going on there. I mean, because why why else wouldn't you address these sort of issues in the manner people suggest? At least try. He's had enough time to try almost everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, like if he'd signed three unbelievable hardshaw midfielders, he couldn't pass the ball. At least you'd say, well, well we went that way. It, yeah, let's see how it goes. You know, let's. Yeah. Oh. We no, went. let's let's sign another five foot seven to five foot nine midfield schemer. 
yeah. see how that goes. We went that way, and uh, but he, he hasn't even really tried it. So, so obviously there was anger. There was a lot of anger. Now, when I I was looking at um, some videos online on yesterday morning, and uh, I noticed that, for instance, Jurgen Klopp, charismatic Liverpool manager, had about fifteen thousand views for his press conference mm-hmm. uh, after Liverpool against Chelsea, which was one of the bigger games, I guess, of the of the season, certainly of the night. Antonio Conte, charismatic Chelsea manager, had a similar number. Troops, on the other hand, at 107,000 and counting. Um, so let's hear from Troops, who was outside the Emirates. He's going to ruin the club, fam. He's going to ruin the club, blood. I'm telling you, fam. You hear? You hear? It's turning. It's turning, blood. Did you hear the booze at full time? It's getting, t- hey, it's getting peak now, you know, blood. It's getting peak, fam. It's getting peak because people are, people are, people must realize, yeah. I don't have no agenda. <laughs> Did you hear that? Troops with this devilish gleam in his eye, orchestrating God, the mob. That was, that was actually scary. Up. That was scary. The man is uh, like a—he's a born performer. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Tribune of the people. 280,000 views. It's a little bit of 280,000 is up to now. Arsenal won, Watford 2, Wenger is a fraud, troops explicit, explicit ra- There's a little hint of the Trump rally views. about that, wasn't there? Oh, but he, he was like, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, he's, and he's whipping them up. You know, he's, he's delighting in this. It was like, a, you know, a kind of a movie super buddy. Mm. It's like, ah, you know, the people, uh, the, they rise. You know, the wave will sweep all this away. Sweep you all away, mm-hmm. and <laughs> this is getting dark. You <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, it's only a couple of a couple of weeks ago that Troops was running around after Arsene Wenger's car. Wenger, Wenger obviously drives a big car like a European Central Banker, and Troops is running around um, saying to him, "Arsene, play Rob Holding. He's really good." And Arsene's like, "That's why I bought him." And everyone's laughing. And it's like, or, or there's you know a couple of weeks back. He's there sort of taking a selfie next to Arsene Wenger, who's again driving out. When, when Wenger's driving out of the ground, there's always the, the most committed fans are there waiting to see him. And he always stops and signs a couple of autographs and smiles and grins. And, uh, and everybody loves him. But, you know, like I say, you can't expect consistency from people. You know, it's Arsenal natural. Football Club. <laughs> it's natural. We are fucked blood. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, I, I, I thought that was interesting. You know, that's, that, was, uh, that was, you know, actually... Uh, the, r- trying to make the crowd rise up. Uh, maybe bye, bye, Wenger. Ah, uh, come on, Aldo. We don't need to hear from you. <laughs> to be fair, that was that was in 2008, by the way, and we're now in 2017. We'll retire it after 10 years, um, which is very soon. So Arsenal next up is Chelsea, and it's really only Cockland that they've got uh, who can play at central midfield, um, which is. Uh, well, there's, there's Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, and nobody really thinks Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain has not proven yet that he can be a top centre midfielder, although it's something Wenger has spoken about before. That's where he thinks he can, you know, he's got a lot of the qualities that he would like to see there. But generally, he, he's kind of been playing on the wing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it may be the case that Ainsley Maitland-Niles has to come in and play against Chelsea, uh, which is going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Um, if he does How do you rattle in Golo Kante? Mm-hmm. Give him something he's never even had to think about before, Ked. This is the outside the box thinking that you were mm-hmm. begging Wenger to come up with. And Golo Kante is the player with the most tackles in the Premier League over the last three seasons, even though he's only been there for one and a half seasons. <laughs> um, 
that's pretty good. And, and number two on that list is Emmanuel Matic, who plays alongside him in the same midfield. <laughs> We're so going to talk to Miguel Delaney and John Bruin about this a little bit later. It's a tough, uh, tough team. Um, a tough pair to come up against those guys. Uh, and obviously Chelsea got the point that they, you know, it was, it was fine uh, as a result for them. I think they probably would have helped to have won the game given they had a penalty with 13, 12 or 13 minutes to go. Um, but, you know, a draw is fine when you're, this, when you're as far ahead as they are. Um, some interesting comments from Eden Hazard around this game. Uh, not so much really around, around the game. Hazard himself didn't didn't actually do that much. And maybe it was a pity, though, that Conte took him off when he did because a couple of minutes later, Chelsea got a penalty, which you imagine he certainly would have scored against his Belgium squad mate, uh, Simon Mignolet. Um, I can actually see the penalty he would have scored against Mignolet. Where is it going? Right into the middle of the goal with, Min- with Mignolet diving the wrong way. It's it's like, it would have gone six inches right or left of centre, depending on whether Mignolet had gone... Which whichever way he had gone, that's so where it would have gone. A, a full panenka or more just, oh, no, just curled curl in and around the middle. He just rolls. He, he he rolls them. You know, he he uh, he just waits for the goalkeeper to go and then just rolls it in. Particularly if it's been today, I think. You know, he's taken a lot plenty of penalties against him, and I think he 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 wouldn't have had a problem. But of course, he wasn't there, and Diego Costa decided he was going to whack it and didn't really get a very good position on it. And Mignolet uh, made a save, which, in my opinion, didn't really make up for the fact that. He let in a ridiculous goal. I mean, people were saying, this David Luiz goal is a, is a shot of such quality that he wouldn't have saved it even if he had, even if he died. And I thought, well, it would have been advantageous to look <laughs> at the ball. Like, uh, you can actually see Mignolet only glances over towards the ball as Luiz's foot is already drawn back. His right foot is drawn back and is preparing to, to strike through the ball or side foot the ball. And it's only then that Mignolet actually looks so that's the first thing he sees is David Luiz foot planted next to the ball, just about to strike it. So by the time, you know, he can actually react to that, the ball is halfway to the net. Now, as uh, Dion Fanning uh, tweeted, <laughs> uh, you know that strike was so good. Five goalies not paying attention wouldn't have been able to say. <laughs> I mean, it was because it, it was obviously very nicely placed in off the post. But it was also side-footed from 32 yards or whatever it was. Yeah, you know. There was some fizz on it, though. There was a bit of fizz on it, on David Luiz can Good fizz height, the ball. Though. Good height for the keeper. Good height for a keeper paying attention. Yeah. I, I think that... Uh, I don't think it was the hardest free kick I've ever seen. And, and a paying-attention goalkeeper would have, would have stood a chance. But, of course, Liverpool didn't have that. Um, he's got to be happy with that tweet, didn't he? Dion, I think Dion, Dion, yeah, I think delighted. he's delighted. Sent that, he, like, he sent that straight away. He's like, it's, it's, yeah, that was good. Sit that's back, the mark, relax. Yeah. Um, Watch those likes roll in. <laughs> he used to be retweets. It's all likes these days. Uh, Sorry, Ken. Uh, well, it's it's so uh, Hazard was saying um, Thierry Henry was doing the thing, you know, where he goes around and, and chats. Sometimes those those conversations are revealing in a weird way. Um, although the, the Hazard number not particularly, but he does say. Uh, he, he, Mourinho, or rather Henri, was asking him, you know, what are the differences between this manager and your previous manager? And Hazard says, tactical training. We do a lot more with Conte. We know exactly what to do in the pitch, where I have to go, the defenders know where they have to go. With Mourinho, it was just he put the system in place, but we didn't work a lot on it. We know what to do because we play football. But maybe the, autom- uh, the automatism was a little bit different, i.e., uh, he kind of just left it up to me to do what I wanted to do. 
which is really what Mourinho was doing. You know, when when, uh, when he was managing Chelsea when they won the title, when Hazard actually played well, it was a very rigid system with everybody in the team performing very specific roles, with one exception, uh, who was Eden Hazard, the kind of X-factor player who was meant to uh, elevate the whole thing beyond, like, you know, to breathe life, the ghost in the machine, Eden Hazard. And uh, otherwise, it wasn't really a carefully constructed uh, system. So I'm sure Mourinho would be a little bit annoyed to have that unflattering comparison between him and um, him and uh, and Conte. Hazard goes on to explain that Conte has has opened his eyes to some really basic, obvious things that I think he should always have been aware of. For you know, considering he's one of the best footballers in the world, uh, he says, "We know to create movement, I have to not even get the ball, but to create movement and space for others." I think now I understand that football is not only with the ball at my feet. It's, <laughs> it's good to get the ball at my feet, but sometimes I need to go deep to go at the goal. So uh, I'm kind of like, yeah, that is good that he's that that sort of Copernican uh, insight has taken place and has a, oh, hang on. It's not actually all about what I do when I've got the ball. When I haven't got the ball, I can still influence the game by moving around so that the other team has to move around to just to where I am, and then that could create space for someone else on my team, and we could score. He must have known all this. Well, maybe maybe he kind of knew it, but it wasn't a conscious... It wasn't like, ah. Oh. I mean, I, it reminds me actually a little bit of uh, of Luis Suarez's autobiography, uh, where he, he talked about... When Brendan Rodgers came to Liverpool, and always, you know, I'll be honest, it struck me in that book that he was finding ways to be polite about Brendan Rodgers because he, he no hard feelings. He left the club, you know, and he, you know, he, he'd obviously gone on to a better, better club. You know, he he was kind of living his dream, but he didn't want to sort of say to dismiss what he he left. You know, so he was kind of trying to build people up. And you remember him saying about Rodgers, oh, you know. Rogers in our first meeting, he sat me down and he said, right, Luis, what we're going to do is this. When we've got the ball, the goalkeeper's got the ball. And he, he then, he showed me how we would just pass the ball out from the back and with numerical superiority, it would be impossible for them to get the ball from us if we, if we pass the ball here. And if our players are standing here and the ball goes here and we're all here. And I thought, oh, no one had ever showed me that before. I was reading this going, you actually can't be serious. Like, you know what I mean? This is... Yeah. You were, you were at Ajax for how many years? You told me they never just, mentioned this. I was just going to mention, yeah, they're one of the great schools of football, albeit yeah, he wasn't uh, a young yeah. lad there. Yeah, yeah, cool story, bro. Just give me the ball, <laughs> will you? <laughs> uh, scored a great goal last night, actually, Suarez. Two great goals, Suarez and Messi, for uh, Barcelona against Atletico Madrid, whose goal was scored by Griezmann, who typically scores a header. I've never seen a player so small score so many headers, apart from maybe Tim Cahill. He's, like, amazing. Header of the ball. Loves the stories going around that United, Manchester United have agreed a deal to sign Griezmann, which are being alternately confirmed and denied by parties close to the deal. Um, this obviously would happen in the summer. It would mean that Manchester United would have the two most expensive players in the world unless another team can step up. But, you know, when stories like this appear, you often wonder if it has got anything to do with the disappointing result that just happened the previous night. Um, what does Jose Mourinho tell us to do, Simon? Will we hear his advice to journalists? Make journalism and tell the truth. Well, okay. He, he used the word true, meaning truth, many times. And Joseph Marino isn't familiar with the word, the English word truth. Uh, it's just like uh, treatiness. 
You know, it's like it's like a form of truth. It's truth-like, apart yeah. from not being truthful. Uh, it, it sounds as though it ought to be true. Now, he, he just repeated, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. Truth is not a word that he has had much recourse to over the previous uh, 13 years or whatever of his career. But um, laying down some hard truths after this game was Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Mm. Just see what he said. Um, their goalkeeper made saves for the camera. Hmm. The save from Mada was not a good save. It was a bad finish. Such a strange criticism. Why would you bother criticizing the goalkeeper for playing through the cameras? Um, well, I thought the more significant criticism there was of his his teammate Mada for missing. Uh, now, Mada missed a similar uh, chance. Who was it against? It was a recent match. Um, Again, set up by Zlatan, across from the right, and Mata has, uh, the ball arrives at his left foot and put it it's over Hull the crossbar. It was, was it actually against Hull yeah. in the League Cup semi-final League first Cup. leg? Yeah, it's not great. It was bad. And now here he has missed a second chance, a second chance where the ball comes across and, and he's like four yards out. That, that ball's got to end up in the net. If that ball doesn't end up in the net, it's either ball in net or buttocks on bench. That's typically... You know, one way or the other, there's going to be contact. Another will be the, the sweet kiss of leather against uh, <laughs> nylon or whatever it is. Or, uh, you know, he's going to have to plump his, his, his buttocks down on the bench. Uh, and, and someone else in this rotating cast of, of wingers will move in uh, and see, if, see what they can do. Matt has scored some great goals around United, though. Oftentimes, he's actually quite a good finisher. What have you done for me lately, Matta? Mm. You know? What have you done for me lately? Only missed chances. <laughs> you know, how many chances are you going to miss? You think I should pick you next week so you can ma- maybe miss another point-blank chance? Zlatan, you know, come in here. What do you think of that? Oh, I think it was a bad finish pass. Yes, Zlatan, you'd know more than that. You'd know more about that than anyone. <laughs> you have, after all, missed 12 clear chances in the Premier League this season, which is at least four more than the next uh, player. You've missed more big chances than anybody, big man. I think the next player is Iwobi, followed by Firmino. They're the, they're the others. But Zlatan is in a class of his own when it comes to missing clear-cut chances. So when he saw that, he understood that it was, all, that it was uh, one matter's fault. Um, we will talk a bit, about, uh, a bit more about this with, uh, with John and uh, Miguel. Yeah, that's a wrap. A report on sport for today. He agrees with plenty, just it's always who's saying it, it's never what's actually said. 90% of anything is who's saying this, and 10% is what are they actually saying. So, the 90% in Giles' case is, oh, it's that twat. John is the best football brain in the world. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. I'd never let you do. But if you're talking about the, the, the press, which you're talking about, have this opinion of Guardiola, it doesn't necessarily mean that football people have. Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken Early's work. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. The press come and go, as we know. You mentioned Ken Early. Well, yeah. you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, what can you, what can you do? Can you please everyone? All right, let's get into it. Miguel Ken has been glorying in the latest evidence of David Luiz's footballing genius. Were you impressed? 
Yeah, I have to say, um, again, for, for a man that uh, has been called headless, showed more presence of mind than anyone on the pitch at Anfield on Tuesday. And it, like, it, was, it was absolutely quality. It was certainly more presence of mind than, than Mignolet. Um, I, mean, I assume you've seen that photo of the keeper basically trying to arrange his wall as uh, Luis twacks it into the far corner. Mm. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's just how far behind the play Mignolet was. It wasn't as though he was just at the end of his routine of cajoling his defenders. He, was, he seemed to be in the early stages of that as the ball was physically Yeah, completely, exactly, yeah. And we're, 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 Luis, again, several steps ahead. And even at the back, I mean, I think, as, as, as Ken let out the light in, there's a fair argument that Luis is, he should be in the team of the season and is probably the defender of the season as well. The most commanding uh, and influential more so centre-half in the Premier League this season. How much of that is down to the restructuring that Antonio Conte has done of the defence? Most of the positive reports you read about Luis say that the re- the only reason that he's been so successful this time is because uh, he's gone with a three in the back. And ultimately, that's probably seen Branislav Ivanovic leave the club, uh, among other things. Is, is that the sole reason why Luis has looked quite comfortable? He's got two good defenders beside him? I think that's probably a bit unfair to him because he stepped up in many ways. Also... I mean, there's been a few times when he's been kind of left one-on-one and he, he's, you know, in previous years, we, we, we all remember one of his worst moments in the past three years that, and one of the moments that made it, made Chelsea's return to him seem like such a shambles when he was left one-on-one with Suarez and Suarez absolutely destroyed him. Mm. Now, while that is Luis Suarez, the point was that he just looked so hapless. Whereas mm. we haven't really seen anything even close to that with Chelsea this season. Um, I, I think the, the formation has definitely helped him. That it suits his qualities. But it's... I think that's given him the base, whereas you have to give him credit for the way he's matured as a player in that role. It's it's brought out the best of his qualities, and he's he's enhanced those qualities even more. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I remember John Terry being nutmegged four times in forty five minutes by Luis Suarez in match Champions. And I don't remember anyone saying that you know he was a, he was a write off as a result of uh, being made to look bad by that player. No, but this is exactly it. Uh, maybe. In a situation like that as well, you wonder does Luis's kind of demeanour have something to do with it? Because he still has that, you know, untidy, rough, ruffled nature about him. Um, although, interesting, one thing that's noticeable with, with Chelsea this season as well, when he was a bit younger in his first few years at Chelsea, he was a lot of kind of, you know, elbows going everywhere and it was there almost seemed less control to him. Whereas that's not really the case. Now, he, he does just look so commanding. Um, and, like, there's almost a smoothness to his play as well. Um, and I think it's... He's probably one of four players now at Chelsea. Actually, maybe three that um, are almost essential to them. You mean Costa, um, Hazard, and and him? I mean, I mean, actually, oh, Kante. Four, 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 I suppose. Maybe Kante and Hazard, actually, as well. But I think the one thing with him, with Luis and Costa is, and one thing, that the one hope, I think, for anyone that still wants an exciting title race, is that they're the two players which Chelsea have no direct replacement for. Because they lose, if they lose Costa, they've no, they've no score and that they can adjust to it, but it's not the same. And similarly, if they lose Luis, and there was a, that slight scare in the game on Tuesday when he went down, what, what would Chelsea do in that situation? I think he's become so essential, and he's, he's pretty much the only player. I mean, like whatever about the formation is suiting him, he's almost the only player that suits the formation. Like Chelsea have no one else that can, that can slot so easily into that, that central uh, role in the back three. John Bruin, do you want to join in this David Luiz love bombing? Well, I've never been quite so uh, held as such a high opinion of him as Ken, but um, I've always thought he was a good player and a good player who essentially needed a manager to somehow rein in his uh, more fanciful notions of how to play the game. And 
playing the central figure in a back three clearly suits him. Um, when they moved to that formation, he was a player that looked suited to it because of his ability on the ball. Um, I think Louise uh, has been... Well, uh, a signing that we all giggled at on the final day of the transfer window. Not all of us, but... Well, not all of us, of <laughs> course, no. Uh, yeah. And then, um, but he, he's, he's probably the best signing of the last transfer window, um, alongside Kante. Now, if, towards the close I just, of I just want to... You're, you're going to talk about Kante here, John. I just want to put this in context, because looking at the statistics from this game, right? Obviously, I'm looking at the defensive statistics here. Obviously, David Luiz leads in clearances 12. He was booting the ball away all night. Um, but if I look at tackles in this game, I'm going down through it here. You know, Matip's got one, Lovren three. You know, the Liverpool midfielders, uh, Chan two, Vinaldum three, Henderson three. Yeah, okay, you know, Firmino has a couple. David Luiz three, Victor Moses two, Marcus Lanza one, Diego Costa one, Ian Hazard one, Cesar Fabregas one. N'Golo Kante 14. This is totally insane. This is, it's, I, not, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. That is a crazy statistic. I mean, for uh, the, the idea of a player putting in 14 tackles in, in a game of that context is just it's mind-blowing. Well, yeah, and the thing I'd say, actually, I mean, I don't know if we, there must be a, a readout of this, but it, it was tackles towards the end of the game. It was tackles closing off the danger that Liverpool posed to Chelsea, perhaps in the later stages. And the thing about Kante, and this was true of him with Leicester, it's his ability to sustain uh, the athleticism from the first minute to the last, and in the last ten minutes, to to be, still be so strong that he's sweeping up players who are, who are tired. Well, he is not tired. Um, it's like they say, you know, in the last ten yards of a hundred meters, it's not somebody that's accelerating. It's the fact that it's the person who's slowing down the least, and that's the way Kante plays. Um, I honestly cannot remember a player in the Premier League of, of such energy levels. And yeah, in those closing minutes, it, every time the ball went dead, it was because Kante had cleared the danger. The bloke's an absolute phenomenon. Um, and uh, I think last year he was a the, the contender for player of the year. This season, you'd have to make him very much the same as well. In fact, he would be my player of the year. Miguel, it was quite a passionate display by the Liverpool manager, Jurgen Klopp. He was keen to show everybody that he cared deeply about what's going on at the club. He seemed to take on a supporter, the fourth official. He also was very keen afterwards to explain why he was taking on the fourth official. Yeah, although he seemed to conspicuously actually um, direct that to the German press because he, he name-checked him and said, tomorrow there'll be all this sort of stuff about... Uh, Lip reading and all that, so I'll tell you what I said. Okay. Uh, my immediate thought, I remember said it to Rory Smith on the night when he said that about what, what the uh, fourth official had said to him. I like your passion. It reminded me of um, the testimony from the Cantona trial in '95. Mm-hmm. Off you go, Mister Cantona. <laughs> it's yeah. it, it seems like you know there might there might have been something along those lines from the fourth official, but it, it seemed a little too uh, too restrained given the emotion of the moment. I thought it was a bit. Um... It was Jurgen Klopp uh, going into a... Uh, there was a sort of a, a flash of David Brent there, actually, I thought, and a self-aggrandizing point he made. You know, I turned around to the guy and he was like, I love yeah. your passion. <laughs> I mean, that, I, just, I thought that was a really strange moment from him, actually. Um, well, I, I suppose that's more so because you're so conscious of maybe... <laughs> the fact that... Because he can probably see other managers, like Mourinho, like Wenger, and with all the um, attention that's been paid to their reactions to the line, that this story is going to rise. And it probably, it probably won't be too long until he, um, 
until he gets some sort of punishment. Well, like, I, I mean, to be honest, what I thought what he did to the fourth official was a disgrace. I mean, he was, yeah. he was, he was looming over the guy, screaming into his face. It was idiotic. Uh, behavior. And, I thought, I thought it made and he has a long be... history. As I mean, even said before the last United game in October, sorry, before the Anfield United game in October, he was asked about it. How you know a lot, a lot of other managers. I have to accept they they don't like my style in the line. But you know, it's got it's, it's gone beyond the style now. Yeah. In the sense, it's just sometimes it's just outright it's aggression, just ignorant and, abu- and abusive. I yeah, mean, yeah. And just... I, and and you know the whole his famous passion only goes so far to explain to, to explain it. Yeah, and John, I mean, I know the. I know, I've talked to talk to you about this before. You know this kind of habit that a lot of managers have of constantly haranguing the fourth official during a game is something that I really don't get. Like, can you explain to me what is what is happening here? Because the fourth official doesn't have anything to do with the game. I mean, I suppose I can see a justification for it. Maybe you know, in the first half, the fourth official is going to go back in with the referee, and presumably they're going to talk at halftime, and maybe the fourth official can then make the referee aware of some things that the the feelings of the managers and you know he can he can help put a bit of context on what's been happening the view from the sideline and all that but what is the point of constantly attacking a guy who is has got nothing to do with anything he's just standing there like he's he holds up the board for the for the time added on and he comes on if the referee sprains his ankle what is the point of abusing this guy and why do they all do it um well i suppose he's an adjunct to get at the referee himself i mean I, i'm getting to the to the stage where I don't think there's any point in a fourth official, uh, and especially not a fourth official being there. Um, I think you, you think of American sports where the where the officials are actually sat up in some you know glass pl- fronted box and making decisions from uh, up there and informing referees of what's going on. Um, I think the only person you need on the sidelines is probably some kind of nightclub bouncer to prevent you know Klopp and Mourinho behaving like they do to stop them getting at the referee, but. The fourth official is constantly endangered by the, the, the behaviour of the managers. I mean, say you go to Stamford Bridge, a place that I know Miguel's very familiar with. Um, in the Mourinho years, you would watch this sort of um, this system that they had of, of haranguing uh, the fourth official. They would do it in sequence. It would be Rui Faria, then it would be Mourinho, then it would be another of the assistants. Steve Holland. Well, it, was, it was particularly the case at Spurs, you know, obviously, because yes. White Hart Lane, you're right beside the... Uh, you're, you're, the press box is right beside where the fourth official is. So you could, you could hear pretty much so much, everything they were saying to the fourth officials. And that was, it was always... It was, the, it was Mourinho's backroom staff. It was almost they had a rota of who was up next to, uh, to harangue the fourth official in a very detailed way. Like, Holland would be kind of, you know, pointing at a list of different things that he, uh, that he, that he had a, a grievance with. I mean, oh, what's they, the process? Do, they, do they? Do you think they think that he's got an open lines of the referee, and the referee can can hear this stuff? I guess well, maybe maybe they're. I guess he is mic'd up, right? Yeah. So yeah. so maybe they're thinking the referee is actually hearing it. It's actually in the referee's ear. He doesn't have to press a button to transmit. The referee just hearing. It. I think he probably has to press a button actually. Yeah, I was thinking that, but yeah, I mean, I, I just. <laughs> The fourth official has become become the the, the focus for these yeah. incidents to happen, and these focus for you know we'll get onto it, I'm sure, but these focus for Jose Mourinho to shift the focus away from the fact his team played crap. You know? Yeah, I think it's it's half it's half it's half of almost kind of showing that we <laughs> we we think some of some of our failures are out the ref, and also I think it's probably a lot of it is the old Ferguson um, approach where with referees that if you don't ask or in this case demand. You don't get so as much pressure as possible, anywhere possible. We'll try and influence even in some way. Um, 
and it probably does work to be fair. It also, yeah, I mean, the, the yeah. Ferguson thing was slightly different because Ferguson would appear, Ferguson's appearances were sort of a little, bit, little more rare than the constant yeah, presence yeah. on the sideline. He would time his explosion, um, whereas theirs is this constant barrage. It, 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 football's moved on a little bit since then. I think the lessons have been learned from him, but. I just, I just really don't see the point. I mean, in the fourth official, as I say, he should be up in the stands, uh, and the managers should be should be made to, you know, just. I suppose his only the only purpose he serves, I suppose, is to stop them getting at the linesman who's running down the line in front of them. That's pretty much it. But as I said, put a nightclub bouncer there that stop that. Do we want to hear a bit of Jose? Can well, you keep talking about Jose Mourinho, so I suppose we're going to have to drag him into this. Uh, you know, he. He had a lot to say, and it's not that much to say, but he had a lot of self-pitying things to say in his short press conference last night. Uh, he also had some a little bit of a lecture on journalism. Uh, let's hear what he. Let's hear that. Do you think the ass should have been sent off jersey? Look, uh, I I really don't understand why you 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 ask me this kind of questions since the beginning of the season, because it would be much more. Um, uh, I don't. I don't know if professional is, is, is the word, but if I was in your place, I wouldn't ask the manager. If I was in, in your place, I would just say and write what I see, what I think, what is my opinion. So if, if I was in your side, I wouldn't be asking uh, Manchester United manager. I would just, game after game, I would just write um, what, is, what is happening every every game with us, if not every game, almost every game. Um, and because if I speak, I, I am punished. I don't want to be punished. And he went on to, to talk about how uh, he's different, the rules are different for him, and a manager, there was another manager who, uh, who was told by the fourth official, I love your passion, and I, every time I open my mouth, I'm punished and fined and sent to the stands and so on and so forth. First of all, what do you, what do you make, uh, Miguel, of his, uh, his ideas about journalism, that journalists, journalists shouldn't seek to get the manager to comment on anything and should just instead write from the heart? <laughs> yeah, it would be the most responsible journalism, I'd say. <laughs> I mean, the whole point of the, with these sort of instances was to get a... Uh, the view of the most relevant people possible, and so it's it's obviously natural. But um, the one thing in that, I suppose, I I think in general, any discussion about referees is has become so tiresome, um, and it's almost it, 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 one one thing I have to say. We might have a point with it is that it is almost too easy and out for a journalist to immediately ask, or for the, for the journalist to immediately ask. The managers about the, the biggest single refereeing incident of the game straight away because it just it, just, it fosters this and it is becoming really really boring. Where you know, it reminds me the worst actually of the Classico when between Mourinho and Guardiola and kind of the 2010 to 2012 period when after every single week to be some sort of it, 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 the referee would be the focus of everything and it's getting a little bit like that in the Premier League at the moment in terms of every week we seem to be rather than actually discussing the football the first thing we're discussing how 90 minutes of the football was conditioned by one or two moments which are inevitable given the kind of circumstances the referees work in now and, I, and actually, yeah. I got a bit of rant from what Mourinho has said but it, it is becoming very frustrating in that sense and he must be delighted with that because um, you know he he talked about three things really he said, I'm not going to criticise Hull for what they did. 
I mean, which <laughs> was like, why would you, why should they be criticised? They just got a nil nil at Old Trafford. It's a great result, you know. They, they, they should, they don't need to be criticised at all. Big of you to not criticise him, <laughs> criticise him. Uh, then he talked about, you know, the referee and how you need to to write the truth. And then he talked about how he's persecuted and other managers, Jurgen Klopp, obviously, uh, and Arsene Wenger, are are not. And at no point did he touch on the poor performance of Manchester United, the fact that they're four points off fifth place, the fact that they've, with the world's most expensive squad and best-paid squad, only scored one more goal in Crystal Palace this season, the fact that he has got fewer wins at this point of the season than David Moyes had at his point of the season. I mean, when you think about all those things, it doesn't add up to a pretty picture. Uh, are Manchester United now, the, have they assumed the crisis club hat in the, uh, in the Premier League top six? Well, I think the worst thing about this performance of United was that it's not like it was the Burnley game where he can pull off save after save. I mean, the man of chance apart, and if you've got odd isolated moments, they, they didn't actually create that much, and they, they, it was a pretty insipid display. And it did feel as if they'd regressed a bit from this uh, formidable winning run that was going to see them charge back into the top four. Um, and that, that hasn't quite happened. Um, they're, they're probably not at an outright crisis point yet, or they haven't assumed the crisis tag that has, you know, has been passed around every, every three weeks, it seems, in the Premier League this season. Uh, but suddenly, all the questions are about them again because they're well. In I mean, they're, they're slightly adrift of the uh, the rest of the big six now. Yeah, uh, John. Um, sorry, were you going to say something there? Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say that I think that result last night um, should help lift the scales from the eyes of some people. There's been a lot of nonsense spoken about United in recent weeks about how they've improved, how how good they've been. How Jose Mourinho, of all people, is putting the smile back on everyone's face. How Manchester United is a happy club. It, it, it isn't. The truth of it is not. Um, let's think about happiness within the club. Um, you've got the, the cases of Luke Shaw and Sidney Martial, two young stars who are distinctly unhappy with life at Manchester United. That much is clear. Uh, you've got uh, a team that has scored, as, as you point out, 33 goals in the Premier League, which is pitiful really for a team of of such attacking talent um and you've got a manager who uh is failing to live up to his grand reputation and is now making excuses for himself uh and previously people have been making excuses for him i mean i think manchester united are at this point aren't they they're at the, at the liverpool of the 1990s point where every every, every everything is a, a corner turned and finally, we're going to be on our way back to where we rightfully belong. Um, that route's closed off for this season. They're going to fa- face a fight to get in the top four. They've actually got a pretty difficult fixture list. And in that amazing miracle run of however many of however many wins in a row it was, the only decent team they beat were Tottenham. I think Manchester United fans and some of the people at Manchester United need to get real about how poor their season has actually been. What do you think is happening with Anthony Marshall? Because he had, uh, yeah, Marina's spoken about him a couple of times recently and said stuff like, oh, you've got to grab your chance. And he didn't take his chance against Liverpool. And I, I'd kill the other players if I picked him, given the way that he's playing. Then he puts him back in against Wigan. He got two assists, I think, scored a disallowed goal. And, uh, well he was out again and I don't really understand this because I thought that he was one of the best players in the squad and it, you know it, it seems logical to play him on the left side of the attack so why is this not happening? Well you play him on the left side of the attack in a, a position that he's suited to and has performed well in 
and uh, rescued Louis van Gaal last season on many occasions. Um, and uh, where Marcus Rashford is actually not used to, is not particularly adept at playing. That would seem a, a decent footballing decision to me. Obviously, there are things going on in, in, in the background there. I think Martial, um, maybe um, maybe one of those players who, who Mourinho finds difficult to crack that won't bow to his uh, very strong sense of what he expects from players. He, he strikes me as an, an individual character um, and perhaps someone who's a little quiet around his fellow professionals. Um but there's no doubting the guy's talent. OK, it was against Wigan at the weekend, but there, there were flashes of a player of, of real genuine quality. And that's not to say Marcus Rashford doesn't possess those, but he doesn't possess them particularly from the left, left-hand side. And of course, the central position of striker is currently uh, held by Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who's scored plenty of goals, uh, but last night looked slow. And uh, when he's not scoring, he's not much used to Manchester United, I don't think. John, you were at your favourite stadium, weren't you, last night? The Olympic Stadium in London to see West Ham <laughs> trounced by Manchester City. And people have been talking about Gabriel Jesus over the last couple of weeks. What did you think of him in the flesh? Looked pretty good? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, sensational, really. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, just to compare to, the, to, to that stuff that I've heard about Manchester United being on their way back and, uh, you know, lifted... Listen, the problem, the problem that I have with Manchester United is they don't lift you out of the seat in, in the fashion that we've been used to. When I was watching Gabriel Jesus last night, I, I saw a player of that type of, th- those type of qualities. Um, he's 19, but he looks strong as a bull. Uh, he's capable of playing across the front line. He's very quick. Uh, he, was, he was getting back and getting stuck in in midfield. This is a, he, he really does, he, he looked the real deal. Okay, let's insert the West Ham clause and the London Stadium clause as well. Manchester City have played best at the London Stadium. Uh, They won 5-0 there earlier this year and uh, they won 4-0 last night. They find it very easy on those wide open spaces and West Ham were, were frankly, horrible in the game. But this this looks a player. This looks a player of speed through the centre, the type of player that can trouble uh, sometimes actually rather slow central defences in English football. Um, and of course, the other thing involved there is Sergio Aguero, who, uh, when he leaves Manchester City, which you know the way things are going, this possibility might be this summer would be regarded as one of their greatest ever players. Um, he was brought on for the last twenty minutes, and he was given a bit of a Jose Mourinho and Wayne Rooney treatment, put on the left flank, reminded that there's someone else in town, and that's Gabriel Jesus now. Yes, uh, the other thing to think is to say is. Antonio Conte is in the stand, and I was thinking that he must he, he must have been thinking to himself he was pretty glad that Jesus only joined two weeks ago or whenever it was. Miguel, what do you think? Are we um, are we about to see a Manchester City that's going to explode all over the Premier League uh, in the remaining fifteen matches and burn up the table into second place? Uh, the, the one thing about um, Jesus signing was that because of his age, his young age, it probably went underestimated. That City were the only team or the only top team. To make kind of a, a concrete first team, like an influential first team signing in this window, and, and it, it, I think it could have a big effect because it's the one thing about signing. For all the talk about value in January and all this, just getting someone in sometimes just you know restores a spark to a team, gives them something different. In this case, it was obviously something that City uh, specifically needed, given that any time Aguero was missing or not on form or not doing what Guardiola wanted, 
they did seem to be lacking a bit. And it seems clear as well that Ian Acho, you know, he's a good option to bring on, but he's he's not someone that can probably be starting regularly for a club like City. Um, and he, it just they looked back. And to be fair, I mean, they looked back to their attacking best. But to be fair, throughout all of this, bar the Everton game, I suppose, where out of Leicester game and you know obvious errors from Guardiola. You know, just caused the team to collapse and made them look bad, like genuinely bad and looked in trouble. Tried a lot of this, uh, you know, poor run. And again, it's interesting in the context of, you know, the United situation, all the talk about the chances they created. I think throughout City's poor run, the amount of high quality chances they created, I mean, it's an awful lot for a, for a team that's supposedly in trouble like that. And it, it does suggest there is, you know, the foundation something there from Guardiola. Or not the friend, but just like that, you know, he's maybe not as far away of getting the team as he wants as we've perhaps taught in games like that against Everton. Um, I mean, even against Spurs, really. I mean, they, they, on the attack, again, they're, they're absolutely superb. And while it seems obvious that they maybe still need one defender, not two, maybe a defensive midfielder as well, I suppose the, the key with this is if they can finally um, finish those chances. It does have it almost kind of bolsters the confidence of the entire team. So suddenly the defense is, doesn't feel as vulnerable because they know they're producing. They're not getting as frustrated with the fact they're, that they're missing so many. But there was a, a conspicuous comment after the game from Guardiola last night in which he said that um, I thought it was very important how we scored in our first chance of the game. So this is something that's obviously been, been on his mind a lot. That he, I think he does feel that for all the pressure that they create, maybe they have been a bit unlucky. And when it doesn't happen early, they, they almost they, perhaps it, it goes on. They leave themselves prone to that defence getting exposed, but that that may, it seems like that should happen less now with with, with Jesus on this sort of form, with uh, with De Bruyne suddenly looking back to his best because I think he went in terms of outright productivity he went on a little bit of a barren run there. You know, I think there was about three months between goals, but um, yeah, they look it looks like they've got all the kind of creativity in the last few months but with a lot more focus as well. Okay, Miguel, John Brune, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Medium. Cheers. Cheers, lads. What, you, what are you saying? You're just a phony, man. This is just what happened. I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day. Supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My heart is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But, brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's scared, brother. And the other was right here. You can, you can run around like you're a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. Oh, people need to get real about how poor Manchester United have been, says John Bruin, who's seen a lot of them this season. So I do, I, I understand what he means in the sense that when I came back from my honeymoon, I'd been away for a few weeks, and I arrived back to all these stories about the resurgence of Manchester United mm. and a lot of laughing at Pep Guardiola because the wheels were continuing to fall off the Manchester City mm. wagon. I looked at the table. It's, fun, it's funny just when you're out of something entirely and you haven't really seen it. And I looked at the table and I was like, wait a second, Man City are still ahead. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the order of things is slightly different. Manchester yeah. United picked up their few wins here. Man City, if Man City had done it in the reverse and had all the same results, mm. people would be saying, oh, Pep's plan is coming together. It, yeah. it is. Manchester United maybe got too much good press there for a couple of weeks. I think, uh, I think, so. Yeah. I think yeah. so. I think the uh, losing of the second leg of the League Cup semi-final, I think that may have removed... 
Say if they were still unbeaten after 20 games. Mm. There is a way that fans have of saying, well, you know, this unbeaten record, this is in some, you know, unspoken way important or symbolizes X, Y, and Z. I mean, the losing of a game that didn't matter whether they lost or not, I mean, they still got through in the league, did actually remove the safety net of people banging on about this unbeaten run. I mean, if, you know, if if they win three of the whatever it is, eight games that they've drawn. I mean, how many games have they actually drawn in the league? I mean, it's it's a lot. Either well, way, yeah. I mean... They won 12 and lost three, I think, so it must be eight. I mean, it? yeah, go and win a few of those and lose a few of those. But I mean, it, it, like an unbeaten run couldn't matter less. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I, I thought... I, I was struck by the self-pitying tone of his comments because I think he is up, up against it now. Remember that Louis van Gaal was, was sacked after winning the FA Cup because... You know, um, they couldn't take the risk of missing out in the Champions League for a second successive season. Well, it looks as though they are going to miss out again, on it again. You know, they're four points off fifth. They have to pass out two of the teams above them. You know? It's not like the, all those teams are going brilliantly, but to pass out two the way they're going? I'm not sure. And when you see uh, Mourinho talk about the rules for me are different, you know, I watch my team play in a hotel for being to go to the stadium, you know. Other managers are told by the Ford officials, wow, I love your work. Me, I'm saying, you know. And you're kind of like, this is, is this the guy they used to compare to Brian Clough? You know? Where's, where's that Brian Clough gone? Actually, I was reminded because there's another story that's happened just this morning. A story which I thought had happened ages ago, but it's, it's uh, Frank Lampard has retired. I, thought, I already thought he was retired. <laughs> You know, but apparently he he's just officially retired, and I can I can think of Jose Mourinho's great man management of Frank Lampard back in the day. You remember it? Yeah, mm-hmm. in the shower, absolutely naked, hugging him, telling him he's the best player in the world. Yeah, naked Lampard, prodding him in the chest, saying, "Big man, you're the best. Man. You're the best in the world." Thanks, boss. Now imagine Mourinho doing that now with Pogba. Could you imagine the sort of deflated, scowling figure? Uh, talking about conspiracies, walking into the dressing room and telling and and persuading anyone they were the best in the world. You know, he's he's just there talking about the crowds at his inauguration. You know, <laughs> it's it's just it's not inspirational. Um, Lampard uh, has announced it on Instagram. It seems I'll give you a little bit of his spiel. This is actually I'm reading it for the first time on myself. Well, so let's discover it together. Yeah, that's that's all. After that's 21 incredible years, I've decided now is the right time to finish my career as a professional footballer. Whilst I have received a number of exciting offers to continue playing at home and abroad, at 38, I feel now is the time to begin the next chapter in my life. I'm immensely proud of the trophies I've won, of representing my country over 100 times, and of scoring more than 300 career goals, which is a phenomenal number of goals. I have many people to thank. I thank my parents for instilling in me the values of hard work, dedication, professionalism, values which I have carried with me in everything that I do. I am forever grateful for the support of my family, my wife Christine, and my two daughters, Luna and Isla. What you've given me off the pitch has always been my strength on it. I love you very much. Also, my friends, my own team that have always been there for me, I would like to thank the amazing teammates, coaches, managers, and backroom staff that I was privileged to work with. I'd like to pay tribute to the clubs that I have represented. Firstly, West Ham United, who gave me my debut in 1996. Thanks to the people there that believed in me at that young age. He doesn't mention the people who booed him off when he was stretched off after breaking his leg. Uh, for West Ham and, and shouted at him that he was only in the team because of nepotism and, and all this kind of stuff. bitterness between both parties that seemed to linger for the rest of his career. Doesn't mention any of that. It's, this isn't nice. the time classy. for that. No, no. More recently, Manchester City and NYCFC. I greatly enjoyed my last playing years at these two clubs and really appreciate the support I received from City Football Group and both clubs' fans. Of course, the largest part of my heart belongs to Chelsea. 
Globich has given me so many great memories. I will never forget the opportunity they gave me, the success that we managed to achieve together. It is impossible to give thanks individually to all the people that helped and supported me in my 13 years playing there. All I can say is from the day I signed until now and going forward, <laughs> love the way he manages to get going forward in there. I'm eternally grateful for everything and to everyone. Chelsea fans gave myself and my teammates such, as, such incredible support. Their passion and hunger drove me on personally to give my best year after year. I couldn't have done it without them. Looking forward, I'm grateful to the FA for the opportunity to for my coaching qualifications. I look forward to pursuing the off-field opportunities that this, this decision opens. Instagram could really do with like a word limit. <laughs> <laughs> 140 characters, you know, it, does, it doesn't leave a lot of room for debate. But on the other hand, it does sharpen the message somewhat, I find. What would his Twitter, his Twitter um, statement have been? West Ham, grand. Thanks for the memories. Chelsea, amazing. Just a uh, thumbs up uh, emoji, thumbs up emoji, punching emoji, yeah. uh, trophy uh, emoji, pints of beer emoji, blue heart, yeah, d- heart in different colours of the different teams that you represent. Yeah, hashtag CFC. Yeah, I mean, what can I say? Um, fine. I think his statement player. said pre- covered pretty much everything. Well, what could we possibly add? Hey, uh, Troy Deeney's going to China. No, <laughs> no, he's not. Watford captain Troy Deeney has told Talksport. He has no hard feelings over Odian Igalu's move to the Chinese Super League and admitted he would also consider a switch to the Far East. <laughs> Good man. Yeah, probably, he said. I've got the missus and two kids to feed and if they're going to throw that stupid money around, I think everyone will definitely look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Iggy has gone out there now. It's probably the best solution for him and his family. Anyone who does it won't be getting any hard feelings from me. Fair play to them. So uh, certainly a hardened pr- pro there. Yeah, well, speaking look, of, speaking of football uh, as the career that it is for these guys, that is that is what it is. I hope uh, I hope Troy gets his dream move. Although I will miss him if he goes. Let's go. We've got another podcast to record today, which is going to feature US Murph on Super Bowl chat and Six Nations. Yeah, we've got a great lineup there for the Six Nations preview. So have a listen to that. In the meantime, thanks, Ken. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, everybody. thanks, guys. Thanks, oh, you're amazing. Thanks, Kieran. <laughs> See you later. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.